Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Like a chrysalis, we're emerging from the economy of the Industrial Revolution, an economy confined to and limited by the Earth's physical resources into the economy in mind, in which there are no bounds on human imagination, and the freedom to create is the most precious natural resource. Welcome to The Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE. Energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker. And on today's show, Ron, we're talking with Vera Sage, practicing fellow, and your friend and mine, Kirk Bowman. So pretty excited about that, Ron. Yeah, me too. Looking, been looking forward to this for sure. Can't believe it's been, uh, it took us this long to get him on the show, and I feel embarrassed by that, but I'm glad he's here now. <laughs> well, he was just really, honestly, harder to schedule than any of the other guests. No, I'm okay. completely kidding. Yeah. <laughs> completely kidding. Um, Kirk Bowman, welcome to the Soul of Enterprise. Ron and Ed, thanks for having me on the show. This is an honor. And Thank you. Truth Truth, truth be told, uh, Ron, uh, and uh, not many of our listeners might know this, but but Kirk and I live—I don't know—maybe what four miles apart. Kirk, Does that <laughs> that be fairly? Yes, cool? I describe it as five minutes. Five minutes, five minutes, which in Texas is you know four or five miles because we just go sixty miles an hour everywhere. Um, and <laughs> and last last week at this time we were both prepping for the Allen Texas Daddy Daughter Ball. And, uh, yeah, we did get a chance to, uh, connect up, although, um, uh, we did not get a chance to go to dinner because Kirk's daughter does not like Asian food and, and, uh, my daughter wanted to go to Payway. So, <laughs> yeah. so there, there you have the inside baseball scoop, but, uh, now, now back to the focus of our show, uh, Kirk, and that is, this really to, to, to pick your brain and talk about the wonderful work that you've been doing with your podcast, uh, art of value, but before we get there, I, I want to uh, want you to tell your story, your 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 story of of coming to value pricing in a way, uh, and and I, I I think this is true. You you Kirk are the are the uh, the Saul slash Paul of the value pricing movement. You, I think that's you a were, fair characterization. <laughs> you were hit hit on the head in, in the road to Damascus, which in this case is exchange parkway between us and uh so so tell us your story you 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 started out being a big naysayer against the proponent of of vp correct that's correct um i've been in software development for years and so i was at a technical conference and i was one of four panelists and we were talking about estimating and billing practices and i sat in the position of hourly billing is the only way to do it we don't know how long it's going to take. We don't know what the final result is. So it must be the only fair way. And there was another 
analyst, uh, our friend Jonathan Stark, who said, if you bill by the hour, there's an artificial limit on your income. And the idea to me that anything that I was doing would limit my income really haunted me. And I left that conference and started a 90-day journey to study value pricing just to see if it was for real. But that's how it started. And okay, so you started this journey. You said, the, the, first of all, the limitation on the income, not not cool with you. You were not down with that, which I don't blame you for. And th- then what did you do? Just Google value pricing? Is that is that really how it started? Well, I you know found one or two books um, on it. And yeah, that basically I Googled it. And of course, this would have been about seven years ago. And there was a lot less information on it. But of course, one of the resources I did come across was Verisage.com. And it was through finding that website that I actually found your name and discovered that you were in the same town as I was. And that led to us having lunch and really, I think, led, you know, if not to the initial conversion, if to the success of it, because that friendship and that mentoring is what got us through that first year. Well, uh, thanks. But yeah, it, it, it was it was pretty amazing. I I, I vaguely remember that the, the first email or phone call fr- from you and they're like, oh wow, you're you're in the same town as me. That's pretty cool. <laughs> and so, tell, so tell our audience a little bit about the steps. Then, I mean, you met with me, but it was really you implementing it at your organization that made it work. And and you had, I th- I think, what may be one of the quickest conversion stories of get inculcating it into your organization as as anyone Ron or I have heard of. So why don't you why don't you tell that piece of it? Well, I think both you and Ryan would agree there are kind of two pieces to, quote, a conversion, right? There's the mental piece, which is kind of, you know, as you said earlier, it's, you know, when the light shone down from heaven and all of a sudden I had this mental epiphany. But then there's the implementation. Although I think the former, the mindset is the most important thing. That occurred over a 90-day period after I kind of had that initial epiphany. But then after that 90-day period, I said, all right, we're going to change this in our business in a year. We're going to give ourselves a year to do it. And it took us actually 13 months. So as far as I'm concerned, we hit the target. And we started with new customers. We started mm-hmm. with customers that, I want to say we started with small, but I didn't. Um, my first value pricing win was a high five-figure project. And it, you know, it went from being a low five-figure to a high five-figure because of that value perspective. But we did start with new customers, and then we gradually offered it to existing customers over time. And it took a while. I mean, I will say, you know, the team was excited. They didn't have to do timesheets. And as they stopped doing it for some customers, they got more excited about not doing it for all customers. But it took my team a while to learn. And we had to figure it out. We had to make some mistakes and stump our toe as well. Well, okay. Since since you led me into that question, what, what do you think was one or two of the big mistakes that you made during the transition? We didn't press hard enough on the value conversation. We were timid with it, and so we didn't pursue it too far. It took a while to build up our courage. It took a while to get to the point where we were willing to part ways if they were not willing to have that conversation. So I think that was one. I think the other mistake was just some maybe some naivete on our part. We actually had a big win out of the gate, and that really – fed our fuel. Now, I was smart enough not to try to do it on my own. I, I guess maybe one thing I did right was, you know, I saw out people like you and Ron and some others, so I wasn't doing it alone. And I think that's maybe the other thing. If there's a mistake you can make, it's trying to do it by yourself. 
And so, so we you talked about encountering myself and Ron, but what 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 about internally? What are what were some of the things that perhaps surprised you about the conversion process? That let's call it uh, unexpected benefit of of uh, of the of the move. Well, probably the biggest internal benefit was just when we started offering options. When you start offering the customer three choices and the conversation goes from will I work with you to how will I work with you, that's a powerful, powerful thing. And we see three all over the place all the time in fast food restaurants and Starbucks and so on and so forth. But to see that and experience that with a customer really is it gives you drive. So I would say that was one of the unexpected things. I'd heard about it, but when I experienced that for myself, it really surprised me. And you said that you, the, one of the mistakes you made was was not giving enough credence or not enough emphasis is probably a better better way to describe it on the value conversation. And now you bill yourself as the visionary of value. So do you think you've gotten better at that conversation, or is that just something that 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 came naturally, or or was that another another focus point for you? Oh, it definitely became a focus point. It definitely became something that I wanted to practice. In fact, I describe myself as a student of great questions. I'm always interested in a new question to ask or how to ask an existing question better or differently. I'm always challenging myself to push the envelope a little further because that fear never fully goes away. You always are kind of trying to be aware of, you know, how is the customer receiving this conversation and, you know, kind of monitoring that on the fly. And I'm always trying to make sure I'm pushing right up to the edge of where that is. And in some cases, coming back and having a secondary conversation, because the one thing I've learned is the better and the more I have that conversation, the better the outcome. And if, if are are there particular questions that you could perhaps share with our audience that are, that are the best openings? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's almost like a chess match, right? What, what's 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 your opening salvo? Do you have one or two go to opening questions that you like to start with? Well, I typically want to let the customer do most of the talking at first. So when we first get on the phone, I don't quote dive right into the value conversation. I kind of let them unload whatever it is that they have to say or that they want. But then I typically will start with, well, what does success look like? What will you be able to do in the future that you can't do now? Another one of my favorite questions is, why is now the right time to do it? Why not six months ago or why not wait another six months? That question right there may be the one that gets me the most valuable information. That question's uncovered things like, well, we've been waiting for the boss to leave for a year so we could do this. Or we got approval <laughs> last you know, last year, but we didn't get the funds released until this year. Whenever you hear something like that, you know there's some credible value because most people are not going to wait a year to do something. That's interesting. I never heard it heard it put that way. One of the questions I've I've always asked is why not why not in six months future looking, but it's interesting that you also ask about the past as well and seem to be getting some good feedback about that 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 question. Yeah, asking about the timing and and the reason I say well why not six months. From now or why not six months ago is I don't know if their answer is going to be in the past or in the future, but I open up the opportunity for them to talk about either one. Yeah, it's almost as I'm thinking this through as you're, you're talking to me, it's almost like the the antidote to the, you know, the, the, the question that is often asked of you, right? How long is this going to take? 
um, it's really the antidote to that because you're putting you're 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 returning it and putting it in their court as to say why didn't you do this six months ago or why didn't or why shouldn't you put this off for six months? So it's it's a it's a nice it's a nice uh, uh, reflection back of that question from the other side of the table. Pretty interesting. Exactly. I really am in so many words saying, well, why why are you even doing this? Why is this important? Mm-hmm. But instead of being that blunt. I am, you know, putting it in a way that gives them an opportunity to just say what comes to mind. And usually whatever those first one or two things are, are things I'm going to inquire about to get to what's really underneath. And we've got about uh, 90 seconds before our first break. I just want to ask you, wh- which was, did you, where did you find more resistance in your transition? Was it internal inside your organization? Did you have to get, get rid of people or did the people have to leave the organization because they couldn't take it? Or was the resistance more from the customer side? So customers or internal? In my case, it was more customers. Um, the people on my team embraced it. I mean, they were ready for it. Um, that may just be because we're in software and we tend to work with people, you know, that are tend to be following technology trends and are, and are looking for better ways to do things. It kind of comes with the territory. So we didn't have a lot of people that were set in their ways. Um, so of course I didn't have to let anybody go. Um, it actually became a way to kind of recruit, but existing customers were the toughest. And, and why do you think that is? Were they just not used to the, the notion of not paying by the hour? It's tough to change the business model on a customer in midstream. They want to know why. And when you're first starting out, sometimes it's hard to answer that question. Sometimes the answer you want to give, you feel like, you know what, I'm not sure I could back this up. And so I think with existing customers, there's that challenge. And some of them just can't wrap their head around it. They don't understand why. Right. Right. Well, well, uh, Kirk, this is fantastic stuff. I love I love hearing these stories and and even having known yours for several years and perhaps even participated in it. It's just it's fun for me to hear, and I hope our our listeners are getting a lot out of of hearing your your story as well. And afterwards, we'll pick up on this. And I know Ron has to want, wants to ask you a bunch of questions about what you think the future of of value pricing and the movement is. So it'll be interesting to get your thoughts on that. But right now, we are up against our first break. We want to remind you that you can. Can visit thesoulofenterprise.com. That's our website where you can get show notes as well as the previews of upcoming shows. And also out there, we do have links to our book and also a archive of all of the shows that we've done in the past. And you can easily listen to them on that thesoulofenterprise.com. But right now, we want to hear from our sponsor, Leading Results. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Is your website just a brochure or is it your best salesperson? If your site is not the best lead generation tool you have, we should talk. We are leading results. We build websites and marketing programs that impact your bottom line. Using HubSpot or WordPress, we'll create a website and supporting marketing program that gets your business found, converts web visitors to leads, and provides clear tracking on what is and is not working. Learn about our team and approach to your success. Visit leadingresults.com slash TSOE to find out more. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? 
I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its forward. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the forward and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We are here with the visionary of value, Kirk Bowman, who does the Art of Value podcast. And folks, it's a must-listen. You have to uh, you have to subscribe to that show um, I'm a regular listener, wouldn't miss it. Kirk, uh, this is just so great. I, I just love hearing the from skeptic to, to zealot because uh, <laughs> that's the story of so many people. But, you know, we got together in Boston. I can't even believe it. It's two years ago now, November of 2014, had a Verisage meeting, and we did a live broadcast from that, and you were kind of the host on that. And I'm going to pick a question from that because I still think it's relevant that you asked everybody to comment on, and that is, what do you think is the value, uh, I'm sorry, what do you think is the future of value pricing? I mean, I, I've seen just, I'm sure you have too, so much movement in the last even two years since that meeting, you know, new podcasts coming up. You had mentioned Jonathan Stark in the first segment, and now, he, of course, he's got his own podcast called Ditching Hourly, and I've been on, and I think we've all been on, brand new podcasts that are just launching. And they're, although they're not dedicated to this topic, they certainly talk a lot about this topic. So what are you pessimistic, optimistic about the future of value pricing? What do you see in your space? Well, I'm very optimistic about it. I would say, particularly those younger than me uh, that are freelancing, I'm seeing and hearing a lot more about it um, in People say that might be anywhere from five to 25 years younger. Where I see the resistance is, you know, kind of those that have gone before me. But I think the future of value pricing is very bright because I think those below us that are coming up embrace it more easily. It it almost feels like a natural fit. And for those who kind of have fallen into hourly billing because that's the way everybody's always done it. If you start explaining why, where it came from, how it's negative for you, negative for the customer, et cetera, they get it and they embrace it. There's not a resistance. So I, I think the future is very bright, particularly with, you know, the generation or two behind us. It's the generation, you know, kind of, you know, that went before us where I think there's more resistance. And, you know, I was listening to your show with, you know, Joe Woodard. Joe talked about, you know, in the accounting profession, it may just happen kind of on its own because those guys are just going to self-retire. Right. Or technology is going <laughs> to displace them at the same time that a big, you know, bunch of uh, older people retire. Seems like those two trends will, will march in step. Um, you know, I've heard one of, you, my, one of my favorite lines that you say, and I've heard you say it many times on your show, that hourly billing requires a calculator, but value 
pricing requires courage. Can you prove that statement? I can, because we instinctively, when we think about a price, we want a formula, a mathematical calculation, some step-by-step way to get to a number. And you don't see it anymore anywhere else than like with accountants or lawyers, right? Because with accountants, it's debits equal credits. With lawyers, you know, it's right or wrong usually or the gray areas. But this idea that we have to make a judgment, but yet when you study value, you realize value is in the eye of the customer. And the more we can get out of our own chair and get into their chair, the better we can understand their perception of value, and then we have to put a price on it. But there is no way to put a price on what's going on in somebody else's head because you're never fully going to understand it. All you're doing is getting a better perception, a better reflection of their perception. And I think that's why it requires courage because at some point you've got to say, okay, for X, I'm going to charge Y. And you don't know exactly. Now, you should have better instinct. You should have a feel for how it's going to go, but you don't know for sure. And that requires courage. And, you know, I think the other thing, I mean, I, I, my new mantra or mantra I've been saying for a long time is value is a feeling. It's not a number. And that also implies that you have to have a tolerance, probably a pretty high tolerance for ambiguity. And, you know, as a recovering accountant and accountants and even lawyers to some extent, we rather be precisely wrong rather than approximately right. So how do you deal with that ambiguity uh, that, that naturally comes with pricing based on value since it is a feeling and not a number? I may be a little bit of an unusual situation with this. The uncertainty, once I did my first dozen or so, doesn't bother me anymore. It, I just go with it. And I guess I've just gotten comfortable with it and... You know, I just go with it. Now, I think the best way that you can hone your instincts or get feedback on your instincts um, rather than from the customer is somebody else, right? So whether you have an organization that's big enough to have an actual pricing council or you just, you know, you've got an assistant that you run that by, which is kind of what it's been like in my organization most of the time. But I think that's one way you get around it is you get somebody else looking at what you are putting on paper. Um I think our friend Paul Kennedy says, you know, one of the things he learned was to never price your own customers. Let somebody else price your customers. Meaning, you know, if he if it was his client relationship, somebody else in the organization would price the engagement because they price it better. So I think right. that's, you know, two or three ways. Yep. Couldn't agree more. I mean, I think more than one mind needs to deal with pricing and, and the pricers are kind of like the agents for authors or actors, right? I mean, they can, they can get you a better price if, if we're not all pricing ourselves. The one thing that I find just curious, and I remember I asked Jay Shepard this question on my show, but basically I said, you know, and I was at the time talking about attorneys, but I think it applies to all the professions. We are hired to use our judgment in so many ways, and it kind of baffles me why we won't use that same skill with pricing. I guess because it's a number and we feel like the number has to be right because, you know, we've all been raised in math. But I think in this area, we've already got the judgment. We just have to have the courage to use it. Right. You know, just in the first segment when you were talking to Ed about your transition and you said how you, you know, you found that that current customers were harder to move over than new customers. Um, I, I chuckled because 
Kirk, I did this back in 1989 with, with my partner, Justin. And, you know, we, we had no clue what we were doing. There were no books. There was nobody on the circuit talking about this. So you want to talk about mistakes made. Wow. I've got a whole, I've got encyclopedias full, but I started with uh, current customers first because my logic was I had a great relationship with these folks. I could sit down in a bar and talk to them about this. So I had no idea that it was going to be difficult. I didn't know you couldn't do it with current customers or that it would be easier with new customers. And of course I did it with new customers at the same time. So I always like to tell people you can walk and chew gum at the same time. If, if, if current, if new customers like it, why wouldn't current customers do you, have you seen other firms make the transition going the other way? Like I did starting with current customers. I have not. I mean, I typically am advising to start with new customers simply because you kind of got to figure out how to wade in water before you swim. And I think it's easier with a new customer. With an existing customer, you know, you're taking a risk. And early on when you're implementing value pricing, that risk feels so much greater and it's so much scarier. And so when you're implementing a business model change, it's a process, it's a journey, it's not flipping a switch. And I think those who fail are the ones who try to go in and just, you know, overnight make it happen. You have to do it as a process. And I think the bigger the organization, you know, the more complex the transition can be. And it starts with that mindset as well. Right, right, right. You know, I've, I've seen so many firms do it both ways. So I'm kind of agnostic about the issue, but, um, you know, I, I agree it is a, it is a process and I think it's one customer at a time. I mean, I don't care how you do it, who you start with, it is one customer at a time. Um, why do you think, even though I know you're optimistic about the future, um, why do you think hourly billing sticks around as, as long as it does as, and is endemic as it is and ubiquitous as it is? Do you have any good thoughts on that? That's got a hundred year history. I mean, you've done the research and I had John Lax on the show, did a episode called, you know, the history of the billable hour. We talked about where it came from, you know, it started with this attorney up in Boston who, you know, all the stuff was going on with Frederick Taylor at the time. And so it just became entrenched. And so as we're growing up and whether um, we're going to school like accountants or lawyers, and that that's just what their professors teach them, you know, and if we're freelancing, we look around and see what most people are doing. Well, they're doing hourly. It's just the way it's always been done. You know, as John Lax describes it, it's, you know, the, the monkey, he tells a story about the monkeys reaching for the banana. And it's a funny story, but just this idea of, it doesn't even occur to us there might be a better way to do it. Now, I know there's a few people like you and some others who have had that epiphany, but I don't think most people do. Most people just say, well, this is the way it's always been done. We're not even looking for a better way because we don't even realize the way we're doing is broken. Right. You know, that word satisfice keeps coming back to me, the the combination of satisfy and suffice. You know, it's sufficient. In other words, it's good enough. It's not broke, so why bother fixing it? It's too much of a hassle. You know, it, uh, I'm getting close to retirement. Why would I want to mess with this? All, all of those reasons. I, I never discount, you know, doing good enough. Well, as we will admit, you know, hourly billing, the problem with hourly billing is not that, you know, you can't make a living with it, right? It can be profitable. Now, we know it's not as profitable. The biggest problem with hourly billing is the damage it does to the customer and to the success. And, you know, in the software industry, you know, up to 50% of the projects are over time and over budget. I'm like, 
okay, so you won't consider a new business model? The failure rates are so high. Why not try something new? I know it seems like we keep making the same mistakes over and over. It doesn't seem to be a very good learning system, you know, the billable hour, because you end up making the same mistakes over and there's no education in the third kick of the mule. At least with value pricing, you you learn uh, from your mistakes and, and your successes. Would Would you agree with that? Was that what you found when you made the transition? Certainly. I mean, we tried different things with options or with pricing and we go, okay, we're never offering that again. And then we would stumble into something. We're like, this is gold. And, you know, we would offer options and we found this one, particularly in regards to software projects, customers don't like to test. And so we said, okay, what customer really wants is quality. So what we're going to do is the highest option, we're going to take on more responsibility for testing. So we're going to charge them a higher price for us to take on the responsibility of making sure there's higher quality. And that sold so well, we said we got to come up with a new top option. Right. And I, I liked how you talked about, you know, when you give people choices, it, it changes the question from should I work with Kirk to how should I work with Kirk? And do you think by, by doing those options that you're also focusing on the outcome you know, the, the, the classic definition of a professional, right, is somebody who takes responsibility for producing an outcome, not delivering a series of tasks. And have you found that value pricing with options makes you focus on a complete outcome? I do. Because, you know, one of the things we're not doing with value pricing, at least from a software perspective, is we're not getting down to the level of granularity. You know, we're not worried about what color a button is. And that kind of ridiculous stuff, we're worried about hitting the target. And, of course, one of the things we do is we constantly are bringing the target up over and over. We don't just do it in the proposal in initial conversations. We're doing it each week in the status meetings. We do it in between the status meetings, you know, using whatever form of online communication we have available. We're constantly pursuing that. And that's where I think it, it's whether they pick the lowest, the medium, or the highest option, it's still focused on what the end result is. Right, and and that is such a, I think, a, a competitive differentiator, and and a competitive advantage uh, based, uh, you know, compared to firms that base charging on tasks. Right, I'm not buying a series of tasks; I'm buying a completed outcome. Well, Kirk, I knew this would just fly by, at least uh, this segment did for me, but uh, we've got some more questions. I'm going to get Ed back in here in the next segment. We'll probably ask you about the, the dreaded timesheet. Uh, I know we want to bring that up. And uh, folks, in the meantime, if you'd like to contact Ed or myself, you can do so at asktsoe at verisage.com. And you can check out our full show notes. We'll post where you can get a hold of Kirk, links to his show and shows at thesoulofenterprise.com. And uh, we'll be back to talk more with Kirk about value pricing and other issues. The future of online TV is here. View exclusive content from your favorite talk radio hosts and new programs that you can't see anywhere else. Visit voiceamerica.tv today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the forward to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. 
The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. The Voice America Live Events page is here now to showcase your corporate, individual, or organization's live event. Visit voiceamerica.com forward slash live events to see all of our past live events and find out more. Whether it's a multi-day conference, special speaker, or single-day event, we've got everything to make your event a success. We can do a few hours or a few days. For more information about taking your event to the next level, call Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or email info at voiceamerica.com. Again, that's Jeff Spinard at 480-294-6417 or send us an email to info at voiceamerica.com. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network. We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Class. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. And the podcast is Art of Value. The host is Kirk Bowman, and he is with us today on The Soul of Enterprise in a way Kirk, I'm kind of jealous that 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 you you do this podcast called Art of Value. In fact, when Ron and I were first pondering the notion of the soul of enterprise, we we thought about maybe concentrating and focusing on on the concept of value and value pricing. And um, and Ron was like, "Nah, there's not enough material." <laughs> but you've obviously proven of us wrong. Last last count, 107 episodes of the art of value T- tell our audience a little bit about the evolution of, of that as a podcast and, and then as a, as a consulting business. So I guess there were kind of two things that merged to create the show. Number one, I've been listening to podcasts for five, six years. And so I've always thought in the back of my head, I'd like to do one. It kind of is in my wheelhouse. At the same time, we implemented the business model of value pricing at my software company and We increased revenue by over 50% the first year, over 70% the next year. And I got real passionate about this business model, and I wanted to help other people see similar results. And that passion has grown to where I'm now more interested in helping businesses implement this business model than I am doing the original software stuff that I started (laughs) with. So it was kind of those two impetuses, the desire to podcast and something that I'm really passionate about. And that's where the foundation of the show started. And you just decided, okay, okay, gonna do this podcast, and here, here, here we go. I know you you, you worked a lot with with your uh, partner at the time, Susan, on the creation of of the materials and that kind of stuff, right? Yes, it's interesting. I took a course on how to podcast, and then it took mm-hmm. me a year after I took that course to get up the courage to finally launch the show. There was some big fear. I wondered, you know, as Ron said oh, we can't do enough to fill that, right? And, and how am I going to get enough guests? And, and of course, you know, now I realize, you know, the deeper you go in a topic, the more you can learn about it. I mean, one of the things, probably the best thing I get out of the show now is I learn from other people. I, I'm so much better at doing this because of the people I've interviewed and the questions I've asked. 
And that, of course, leads me to my next question, which is a bit unfair. And I'm going to exclude Ron and myself because we have appeared on your, your podcast as well. Any particularly interesting guest or even moment in the show, something that jumps out at you in, in, in I know this is hard because it's sort of the way I feel about our shows is there. It's like sort of in a way like my children, you know, which one do you love more? Right. Um, but is there something that jumps out at you from, from, from the art of value? Yeah, there's probably three different things that come to me for different reasons. Um, I'd say the first one is just the show that kind of, I realized I discovered something and was so proud of the final product. It was when I interviewed, um, Joni Newkirk, who was the in charge of pricing at Disney, or, or actually her consulting. Yeah, she was in charge of pricing at Disney and then, you know, wound up later becoming a consultant to them, but helped them make that change in their pricing. And, you know, I was fortunate that I basically met Lee Cockrell, who's been on your show, and he introduced me to her. And, you know, her story was just so good. And I didn't realize how good it was until we had her on the show. So that was that was one that I really enjoyed. Um, and of course, you know, thanks to Ron, I was inter- able to interview Rabbi Daniel Lappin for our 100th episode. Um, that was probably the most nervous I've ever been, was interviewing him. And he's one of the kindest people you'd ever meet. But, um, and I'm really proud of that show. Probably the one where, you know, I got stumped was when I interviewed Oren Claff. He's the author of Pitch Anything. And his book talks a lot about frame control. And, you know, how do you, when you have a limited amount of time to pitch, and what he does is he pitches, you know, multi-million dollar investments. He, he, you know, you imagine, you know, he's going into somebody's office and, you know, there's 10 other people sitting in the waiting room. They each get their 15 minutes to pitch. And so, you know, he has this series of techniques he uses to kind of control the frame. And he started using those techniques on me during the interview to try to shorten the interview. And I, and I don't think he was trying to be mean. I think he just, it, it, it's who he is. And the first time he did it, it kind of caught me off guard. And I kind of just, you know, I went along with it. And then he tried it again later in the show and I caught him. I, you know, he, he tried, he, he was something like, oh, I got to move on to my next meeting. I said, all right, well, you can do that as soon as we finish the time that you originally committed to something like that. So that was fun. <laughs> Did you did you say did you leave that in the podcast? I did, and I will admit, <laughs> I I had some conversations internally about whether to leave that in because at first I was embarrassed, and you know it's turned out to be one of our better episodes. Yeah, sure, and and I'll, I'll truth be told, your episode with uh, uh, is it Joni not Joni Mitchell? That's uh, the singer. What's her name? Newkirk, Joni Newkirk. Um, it is my favorite episode of yours. She just tells the great story of that transition and and having the being being fully responsible for the revenue and completely changing that business model. I know it has really struck both Ron and myself as as one of the the, the best stories I think either one of us has ever ever heard because it it really is in alignment with what has to be done at professional firms to take that 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 P and L or especially the, the the L part the loss part away from in, in some cases partners who have priced work for years and years and years and sell, tell them no you don't have to worry about it anymore do not worry about the profitability on this job uh, because what we're looking at to do is really maintain price integrity throughout the entirety of the firm um, so that really really struck me just a- any other follow up thoughts from you on that one as well. 
Well, you remember Joni talked about how they did that very thing you just described to food and beverage, right? Yep. Food and beverage was yep. worried about their P&L. And she said, don't worry about it. That's not your responsibility anymore. Your responsibility is to serve the best food you can and to serve the customers and make sure they're fed well and make sure they're happy, make sure they get it on time, make sure they don't, you know, they want hot food hot and cold food cold and that kind of thing. We'll take care of where it's profitable. And they were so worried about, you know, the meal plan idea. And it's become one of Disney's most popular things. I mean, we've been to Disney three times, and every time we get the meal plan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it, and it, it just makes so much sense, right? Because, and I never really thought about it before until I heard that story, but it was almost as if you, the, the, the pilots and planes were responsible for the profitability of an individual flight and what they would do. Right. The, well, the, the pilots are probably the sm- some of the smartest people that work at an airline, but we don't let them price the plane. We don't let them price the, the passengers on the plane. Exactly. And of course, as you guys have talked about many times, you know, airlines are some of the best pricers out there. Mm-hmm. Now, now taken over by the by the hotels, by the way, I think Ron and I are pretty much in agreement that it's the, the hotel industry that's that's running running away with it. Um so now this is so this might be our our embarrassing moment question here. Uh, and don't tell me if you've got who who it is. But do you, do you have any shows that you recorded that you're like, yeah, not going to let that one out? <laughs> you know, there was one person I interviewed, uh, an author of a book, and he I I it never occurred to me to ask him how he priced. He was just his organization so successful. I mean, people go to check out how you know. It's kind of like Zappos of the software world. People do tours of their facility. I, it never occurred to me to ask how they price. And I got him on the show. Turns out they they do it by the hour. So we just cut that part of the show. <laughs> All right. So you just cut the part of the show. You didn't. You didn't. You didn't put the whole all episode in the can. Exactly. <laughs> Fantastic. So, so it, it just let's just ask because there might be budding podcasters listening uh, into to us today and. What do you have, advice do you have for podcasters? Is there something that you would suggest that they do if they if someone is interested in starting their own podcast? Do it on something you're passionate about. I think that's the reason why my shows made it past 100 episodes. There's kind of this statistic in the podcast world that most shows do what they call a, a pod fade before episode seven. So one of the significant milestones is making it past episode seven. I think another one is 100 because once you get past 100, there's just a different level of commitment. But pick something you're passionate about and do it because you're passionate about it to help others. Everything else will follow. And I know we kind of, you know, say the same thing. You know, we focus on value and the pricing will come to a certain degree. That's what I would say about podcasting. Great. That's good stuff. Good, 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 good thought. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, do be passionate about it and, and, and the money will follow, right? Well, you can't talk about something for 100 plus episodes if you don't have a passion for it. At some that's, point, apathy is going to set in. That's for sure. So tell our audience a little bit about the consulting work that you're doing now. And that, that, that you know, the, the podcast is really the, the, the entree into some consulting work. What, what are you thinking about? What are you interested in with regard to the, the, that, the consulting piece? My big mission with Art of Value is I want to help every single business that I can to make the switch to value pricing. Because I believe the better you get at pricing, the more profitable you are. The more profitable you are, the, the better you're helping your customers, the better organization you can create for your employees and their families, and the better you can help yourself. So I think pricing helps everyone involved, from customer to employee to team members to your personal family. And I want to help 
others see the same results that I've seen, see the same benefits, enjoy their work more, employees are happier, etc. That's what I want to do. Now, the ones I really enjoy working with are probably kind of the smaller to medium-sized firms, like you know anywhere from five to 50, somewhere in that range, because um, I think that's where there's the most opportunity to turn the ship. You get into a large organization, number one, there's not that many of them, but number two, it's very hard to turn those big ships, although we know some people who've done it. But those smaller ones where the you know the owner's still involved, if the owner believes it, they can set the agenda. That's where I love doing it. And so I love working with those type businesses through coaching as well as consulting. Great stuff. Well, I want to make sure that we give Ron a little bit of time to, to ask you some questions. So we're going to move to our next break. But I want to remind everybody that you can get a hold of Ron or myself by sending us an email at asktsoe at verisage.com. And of course, we are on Twitter. And that, of course, is at AskTSOE or hashtag AskTSOE if you want to tweet along with our show. But right now, we want to hear from our sponsor and my employer, Sage. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Four new employees, a 20% increase in revenue. Being one of the 9 million women business owners in the U.S. These are your proudest numbers, your landmarks of growth and success. Sage helps you achieve business milestones with cloud and software solutions that lead to deeper financial insights. Believe in your numbers. See what Sage can do for your business. Visit believeinyournumbers.com today. Have you ever read a book that changed your life? I sure have. But have you ever read a book where the forward changed your life? Me neither. Hello, I'm Greg Kite. I wrote the foreword to Ron Baker and Ed Kless's new ebook, The Soul of Enterprise, Dialogues on Business and the Knowledge Economy. The value of this book is found entirely in its foreword. So when you buy it, think of it as buying the foreword and getting the rest of the book for free. Available now for download exclusively on Amazon.com. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now. Toll free. 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE. Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise. Well, welcome back, everybody. We are here with the visionary of value, Kirk Bowman. And Kirk, what about the timesheet? I'm a zealot on this topic. I don't think a firm is value pricing if it's still measuring time because I think it's the wrong thing. But what do you see going on with the timesheet? Well, I hate the timesheet as much as you do. I despise it. Um, you know, we could go on and on probably for just an hour on the evils of it. You know, it focuses on the wrong thing. You don't get incentivized for learning and doing things faster, yada, yada. Um, I think younger people especially hate tracking their time as, you know, I think you've said before, and I've used the phrase as well, nobody went to college to learn how to fill out a timesheet. It just 
we're focusing on the wrong thing. I don't know how else you can say it. You know, it's, it's like trying to drive a, a race car fast with square tires. It just does not work. And the, so the sooner you get rid of it, the better. Do you think that it inhibits? I see. I think it inhibits good pricing because as long as they're there, you're going to go back and check your price against the time that you spent. And that's my problem with it. It never breaks that, that fundamental nexus between effort and, and price. I agree with you. I mean, I had an email conversation just this week. Somebody who's a big fan of your show. In fact, when you guys announced I was going to be the guest, I got an email from him saying, hey, congratulations. And I wrote back. I said, have you guys implemented value pricing? He goes, no, we still measure things by effort. And then we tack on a little value at the end. And it's it's a crutch. And, you know, it gets back to that uncertainty we talked about earlier. People are uncomfortable with uncertainty when it comes to numbers. And it's that judgment, which is the very tool that allows you to get past it. You know, Kirk, on, the, on that live broadcast we did in Boston, you asked, uh, or Ed made this statement. And I just wanted to get your reaction to it. Ed says he can see a future where project management dies. And I've heard you say on your show that, you know, people may comp, uh, make a project management too complicated and that your firm uses base camp. You know, you try and keep it really simple. Do you think uh, project management could die? I would love to see traditional project management die. I mean, there's still got to be somebody who takes responsibility for saying, okay, are we making forward progress? Are we going to meet the duration of the project, not the effort, as Ed taught me? And there's even, you know, something to, you know, having that ongoing communication. I think the more communication you have with the customer, the better projects are. So I think traditional project management has got to go away. And I, you're right. I think the only project management most people need are very simple tools like Basecamp, where the timesheet corrupts project management is when project management starts focusing on, well, we said this was going to be three hours and now it was four. Who cares? Right. Yeah, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, by definition, if something hits a timesheet, it's no longer manageable. So that that can't be good project management. You know, another phrase that you use that I really like on the show uh, is value lifestyle, living a value lifestyle in your business. And just lifestyle, uh, unpack that for us. What, What do you mean by a value lifestyle? Once you become obsessed with focusing on value, you begin to see it everywhere. I mean, I go to Six Flags over Texas, which is you know the theme park here in the Dallas area, and I look at their pricing. I will be buying something, the price is higher, and I will actually respect the company because I realize they've recognized their value and I'm happy to pay the higher price because I admire the fact that they are implementing the very thing that I'm passionate about. That's when it becomes a value lifestyle. I mean, I'll be having conversation with my wife and she'll go, oh, I can't believe they priced it this way. And I'll go, honey, You need to realize this, you know, there's a respect that comes for higher prices. I think when you get to that point, it's a value lifestyle. It's intrinsic. It flows through whatever you're doing. It doesn't matter whether you're doing your business, you're doing charity work, you're doing something at home. It just becomes the way you think. And that's why I say it's a mindset. It's a paradigm shift. It's a philosophy. It's way more than a business model. And I'm going to jump in here. I'm going to jump in here and say, do you, have, you, have you gotten this, this Kirk, from your wife? Can we just have dinner without you analyzing the menu? I mean, because <laughs> like, well, you know, Christine, look, that like the appetizers are are priced 95 and the entrees are flat dollar amounts. What? She's like, please, can we just eat? Can we just eat? 
<laughs> yes, there are times where I get, you know, look, just stop. <laughs> <laughs> well, but but I think you're right because I think the whole value lifestyle to me, I mean, just it's other directed. Right. It's outwardly directed. We, you know, nobody goes into a store to please the shopkeeper. You, you, you know, the shopkeeper has to please your interests and having a value lifestyle means that you're looking out for others, whether that's in your business or your personal life, and you're putting their interests first before your own. I completely agree. I thought I was customer focused before I had a value perspective, but now I see it so differently. And, you know, it, it's really interesting to me. You know, when you're in it, you're doing it, you can't see it. But it's just ironic that businesses that use the billable hour say they're customer focused and they are leading the customer down the wrong trail. They're looking at the wrong thing. Why is the result something that you can't look at? You can't focus on a result with a timesheet. There's no way. Right. You, you know, we switched back in 1989 from the billable hour to fixed pricing because we figured out it was a lousy, crappy customer experience. We moved not because of all the marketing and economics that we teach now. We moved just to make to have a, and create a better customer experience. And, and boy, it's, it's very powerful in doing that. Kirk, I also wanted to ask you, you're a tech guy. I don't know if you've heard our show with Daniel Suskin and the future of the professions, because I know you've, you've worked and mentored and coached lawyers and, and other professionals, accountants and whatnot. Um, what's your take on the future of the professions with all of this technology, you know, AI, deep learning, machine learning, these different platforms? Are you pessimistic or optimistic about the future I'm excited about the future from the standpoint that I think the technology and AI and those things are going to push us as professionals into doing the things that professionals really should be doing. So I'm excited about it. Now, I'm not going to say it's going to be a pleasant process for everybody. Um, change is painful, but I think the outcome of the change is going to be good because there are certain things that we're doing now in the professions, and I'm using that as a very broad term, that we shouldn't be doing. Right. I've learned in software, and this sounds almost, you know, hypocritical or not hypocritical. Can't remember the word. But anyway, the idea that writing code for the customer is one of the least valuable things you can do. And as a software developer, I think one of the best things I can do is get out of doing that and helping the customer do stuff that's higher level. So I'm excited about it, but I know there are people who are not. Right, right. Uh, you know, yeah, I, I agree. There's way too many surgeons piercing ears, you know, to borrow that metaphor. Uh, and, and this will focus us on higher value things. Um, Daniel is a little bit pessimistic about it. Daniel Suskin, about that the impact it's going to have on jobs and displacing people. But I kind of take Rabbi Lappin on this one. He says, you know, work is equal to worship in the Hebrew language. And we'll, we'll always find a way to serve one another. And, and I kind of, well, I keep that in the back of my mind and, and say, I'm optimistic about this, even though I know it's going to cause some dislocation. Well, you know, there's kind of a premise underneath that, that dislocation is bad. Well, if dislocation didn't happen, we'd still be, you know, riding horses and buggies. Exactly. We'd still be in a cave. You're rubbing rocks together and <laughs> lamenting that we're no we're no longer farmers or you know we we lost a million telephone operator jobs i mean that's kind of the history of progress and and that's why i think when you put this in a a more historical context i'm less worried about it though 
you know, I'm sure as you know, just dealing with firms and people about this issue, they're they're very paranoid about some of this technology coming down the pike and just, you know, we're, it's going to take all of our jobs. Well, the reason they're worried is because they realize they're going to have to do something different, and that's scary. And they're trying to hold on to what they've done, but you can't hold on to things for forever. Right. Um, Kirk, in our last minute, and it's only really 30 seconds, but I'll ask you, what one piece of advice would you give to firms about their pricing? Become good at it. Treat pricing as a skill. We all have gone to school to learn how to code or practice law or to be an accountant or whatever. We've taken certification tests, but yet none of those teach pricing. Become a student of pricing. Become great at pricing because pricing is the best lever you have. Right, for profitability. Couldn't, couldn't agree more. I mean, turn it into a core competency, as, as I like to say. Well, Kirk, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on The Soul of Enterprise. We're definitely going to have to have you back and keep up the great work over there on Art of Value, and we will put full links to your show. And we might even highlight the one with Joni Newkirk that you and Ed were talking about on Disney because that was fantastic. I really enjoyed that show, and I tell that story all the time now. It's part of my repertoire, so thank you for that. And uh, Ed, what, what do we have on store for next week? Next week, we're going to be moving up Freerider Friday from the end of the month because we're going to do a year-end wrap-up show on the 30th, which is just before New Year's Eve. And don't miss next week's show. I'm going to tell my story about my visit to Zappos. Oh, fantastic. I look forward to it. Ed, see you in 167 hours. This has been the Soul of Enterprise, business and the knowledge economy, sponsored by Sage, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. Join us next week, folks, on Friday at 4 p.m. Eastern, 1 p.m. Pacific. We'll be doing Free Rider Friday. In the meantime, please check out thesoulofenterprise.com for more information on our show today with Kirk. We'll have full links to where you can find him and his show. Uh, also, you can contact Ed and myself at asktsoe at verisage.com. Thanks for listening, folks. Have a wonderful weekend. Talk to you next week.